Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Everybody and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show. I'm your host, Michael McCall, and we've got another packed show for you this week. We'll look at MLS avoiding a lockout of the players, which was the, the breaking news as we recorded last week's episode. But we'll also look at the anger and bitterness that this whole debacle has left from the players towards the league. And it's going to be a rift, I think, that is going to be a while before it it fully heals, if it ever does. I think it's something that has shown the league, the owners, in their true colours, exactly what they think of the players before backing down in the end. There's still a lot of unanswered questions about this Orlando tournament and then what happens after it. We'll look at some of those and get some players' thoughts on that. We'll also look at some of the other MLS and CPL news from this week. And our feature interview this episode is with a BC boy doing well in MLS, but not with the Whitecaps. Montreal Impact centre-back, Joel Waterman. But that's all still to come. But we want to kick this episode off by just touching on the the big, big news that's dominated the, the headlines for the last couple of weeks. The anger the protests, the real desire for change that has followed in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd by the police in Minnesota. As you watch everything play out in the US, around the world, it really does feel that the world is on the verge of a watershed moment. It feels that if this is not the time for real change against racial discrimination, oppression, police brutality, everything that's gone with that, everything that the protests are about, then when will it ever change? It feels that we are at a time in the world where future generations will look back at this being a defining moment in history. We've seen the impact that these protests have had throughout the world of sport, especially in the football world. Football Sport in general is just such a a great catalyst, a great vehicle to get these messages across, to show a united front. And the football world is certainly uniting in this. It's been both wonderful and saddening to hear footballers speak out, telling their own stories about the, the racial discrimination they've faced over the years. Football clubs have spoken out, put a lot of resources on their website, 
The Whitecaps have a, a list of links to anti-racism resources and organisations in Vancouver and throughout Canada. Clubs around the league are doing that. They've been painting messages at DC United's pitch. The MLS website is full of stories from black players telling their story. But you don't want this just to be about tokenism. You want this to not be because it maybe feels like organisations think this is the right thing to do. We need to see real change. In football, that means more black coaches in the game. More black executives. People of colour getting the chances that they've maybe been overlooked for in years past. Now, we talked long and hard about how to uh, address this topic in this week's episode of the show and episodes moving forward. Let us know how you would like us to cover it, who you'd like us to speak to. And my, my final thoughts on this for this episode is I just want to direct everyone to the, the excellent Vocal Minority podcast. You can check it out on vocalminority.ca or at vocalminorityca on Twitter. They turned their episode over this week to chat with Mike Newell at Football Saves on Twitter. And Mike told his story of what he's faced here in Canada, his experiences, and it, it's, it's not an easy listen. It's a difficult listen at times, and it's a, a heartbreaking listen at times, but it's a must listen, it's a necessity. So I, I would just really direct everyone to, to listen to that and just hear what Mike has to say. And there's no real easy way to, to transition out of this into the, the football part of our show. That's what we're going to do for the rest of tonight's show. As we look at the big news of the week in North America, as the MLS does not lock out their players, but has burned a lot of bridges with them, as the Orlando tournament gets set to get underway. Now the last couple of weeks has seen a, a lot of wrangling between the players, the MLSPA, the league itself, in just trying to thrash out a return to play. It, it's what the players want, they want to get back doing their job, they want to get back on the pitch playing. But they want to do it safely, in a way that protects themselves, their family and their loved ones. And I, I don't think anyone would want anything different. Or so you would have thought. As we recorded last week's show, it looked, to all intents and purposes, that an agreement was imminent between the two sides. The MLSPA tweeted out that players had voted an agreement to the league's demands They'd sent forward their proposal to the league. It was all expected to get ratified. And then we could start planning for Orlando. But not so fast. Because Uncle Don Garber had other ideas. Reports started to trickle out on Sunday night that the league rejected the MLSPA agreement and proposal, putting in their own demands, which consisted of further pay cuts, a force majeure, that would tie in attendance to future pandemics or lack of operations and an ability for the league to cut players' salaries and in cases of that. Always dangerous when you tie something into attendance because they can be manipulated, as I think anyone that reads The Breaker will tell you. But not only did Garber and the league throw this back into the players' faces, he also put a demand that they had to agree by noon on Tuesday or the players would be locked out. Yes, the league were set to lock their players out, cancel their health benefits during a pandemic. That 
is what Major League Soccer is apparently all about. Now, I don't know what Garber was expecting from that, but what it did do is it united the players like never before. Where some players had maybe been on the fence as to whether to go to Orlando or not, whether to agree to the terms or not, in the past, we've heard that sometimes the, the foreign players or the big money players don't maybe back the union and what they're looking to do to, to a certain extent. Not all, it has to be said, and that does seem to be changing in recent years. But what Garber's threats did is it lit a fire under the players. It gave them added vigour, it united them, and they were set for a lockout. Now, we won't go into the ins and outs of the, the next 48 hours of bargaining, The league pushed back their deadline to noon on Wednesday. But have no doubts about this. The league backed down big time to the players' demands. It was fantastic to see the players tell the league where to shove their proposals and get the league to basically not only agree to what they were wanting for this Orlando tournament, but finally, finally ratify the CBA that had been agreed at the start of February. Long, long overdue. Tied into this new agreement, some of the things agreed in the CBA have been pushed back a year. That includes things like revenue sharing. The force majeure clause, it's still not really fully been explained as to what this now is for for MLS, but it is not tied to attendance. That's the main thing there. There has been a pay cut agreed across the board for all players of 7.5% for this year saving the league and the owners, who once again, I will mention, get an obscene amount of money from expansion fees, saves them, in this case, millions. Because apparently, the league is losing millions with not playing. Not getting gate revenue in, not getting merchandise sales, not getting TV broadcast deals, not getting advertising, sponsor money, all that kind of stuff. And I don't doubt that they are, But the way that they went about this was absolutely disgraceful. The players were rightly angry about it, and I've never heard players speak out the way that they have spoken out about this publicly. But before we get to to some of what the players have said, Don Garber held a conference call with select media on Wednesday morning. Not everyone got an invite. AFTN did not get an invite. To my knowledge, no Vancouver media got an invite to this. There was just select people on the call, The Athletic, ESPN, some newspapers from the States. Not everyone got to ask questions, yet the call went on for an hour. Now there was a lot of interesting ins and outs of this, and I'm probably going to send it out to all our extra podcast listeners as well, just so you can hear the full thing. But I just want to play you a couple of snippets from it just now, where basically Don Garber explains the whole lockout situation. So here's what Donny G had to say about that. As often is true, the last issues in any labor discussion get very difficult. Since 2005, we've been able to uh, bargain and negotiate with our players, with their bargaining unit and their leaders in a room, and we and our owners in another room. Uh, that's not something we were able to do today, and uh, or in this negotiation, and we certainly uh, did not have the time pressures. Uh, that we were faced with in order for us to have certainty as to how we would return to play in 2020. So I made the decision over the weekend uh, that if we were not able to finalize an agreement, uh, that uh, I would 
uh, on behalf of our ownership, uh, lock the players out. Uh, that's the first time in the 26 history, 25 year history of our league uh, that we ever had to get to that point. It's not something that I did without a lot of thought and without a lot of concern and a lot of understanding as to what impact that would have on our players and on the negotiation. But it was something as the leader of this league uh, that I believed was necessary in order for us to get to the point today uh, that we have reached an agreement. Why, uh, you know, other leagues are in, sports leagues are in different situations. Uh, NBA, NHL are nearing the end of their seasons and they, you know, they needed to see it through. How are you guys different and why did you decide to do this now as opposed to perhaps waiting until later in the summer or the fall? What, what would you say was the urgency in, in doing this tournament right away? Well, it starts, uh, uh, as, you, as, you, as you probably know, Steve, you heard some of these comments before, uh, Major League Soccer will take a billion dollar revenue hit uh, due to the, uh, the pandemic. And that's a function of lost revenue uh, that regardless of what we're able to do is going to be nearly impossible to, uh, to generate at the levels that we need. Our previous uh, uh, business plans and, and certainly the basis for the negotiation of the CBA were based on what the expected business for Major League Soccer would look like over the next five years. And obviously um, uh, that's changed. Uh, we only were able to play two games and with the key word here is the uncertainty as to when we can return, how many games we'll have, what we'll be able to deliver to our media partners and to our national and corporate partners uh, are, uh, or not are, have forced us to come up with a plan that we could ensure at least allows us to get back in front of our fans. Because unlike the other leagues, their fan bases are deeply matured and been around for generations. Our absence created just obviously a void in, in, in their lives in, uh, and, and their love and care for our players in our clubs. Uh, but clearly our absence from, uh, 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 from the sports scene was, was really crucial for us to get back. So it was about ensuring that we knew how many games we could play, ensuring at least that we would have a tournament and be able to deliver that to fans and to our partners and capture some uh, portion of revenue. And then in essence, uh, allow us to be able to plan for what Major League Soccer could even look like in 2021 and beyond. Uh, I, I think it's important to note that the original Disney plan was twice as big as the one that we ultimately have settled on. And as such, the revenue even associated with that has been dramatically reduced, all part of our desire to sort of uh, reach an agreement that we think could have uh, uh, satisfied the needs of our, of our players and its union, but also our needs to uh, uh, get back to work. Keyword is uncertainty, Steve. How much damage do you think has been done to the relationship between the league and the union, given that you threatened a lockout only to arrive at a deal that at least outwardly looks very similar to the one that the union was offering you on Sunday? Well, again, Steve, I... <laughs> I know that, that uh, there's been lots of information that's been distributed and, and uh, media has had access to 
Um, but nobody really has uh, been, well, I shouldn't say nobody, we have not commented on any of that. Uh, there, were, there are things that went into these four or five points that are crucial to both parties. And it's not just about any one of them. It's not just about the salary reduction without what the revenue share will be in 23. Uh, clearly the, the language and the, the need to ensure that we were comfortable with the, uh, the force majeure uh, was crucial. So these are, this is what we kind of call inside baseball uh, to, uh, to those that are really close to us. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we didn't believe uh, that uh, we were um, uh, sort of arguing for and advocating for things that were really crucial to uh, the future uh, success and viability of the league, I certainly would not have gone down that path. So some words from Don Garber there, just explaining about why he was wanting to lock out the players and how the decision came about to not finally do that. I really do not think how the league can possibly think that they've come out of this in any good way, shape or form. There's a lot of people that disliked the league and the way it was run to begin with. And all this has done is just really added to that. And some people that maybe weren't thinking badly about the league, I think they now know what this league is all about. I don't want to say all owners because we don't know whether this was a united front. We don't know whether all the owners agreed to lock out the players, whether some of them would still have paid their players. But the whole situation was it just leaves a horrible taste in your mouth as a fan, as media, and especially for the players. And as I said before that, I've never heard the players in MLS so united about something, speaking so publicly and so passionately about just how disrespected they felt, how hurt they felt, and just how unbelievable this whole situation was for them. And I was on a couple of conference calls on Wednesday with players from around the league. And I want to bring you some extended audio from that now. And I feel it's important to to bring you this selection just to show just how high the feeling was running amongst teams, amongst individual players. And it's an anger that certainly is not going to go away for a while. So first of all, we're going to hear from Minnesota United's Ethan Finlay. Montreal Impact's Evan Bush, former Whitecaps goalkeeper and player rep, but now the RSL goalkeeper and player rep, Zach McMath, and finally, from Vancouver's very own current player rep, Jeet Nerwinski. Let's hear what they had to say. Just what, what is your reaction to finally get here and what do you think is the pulse of the players to, to get to this agreement after what sounded like at least one very spirited group call with, with the league um, and then their threat of, of uh, not one but, but two lockouts and, and how would you describe kind of the relationship right now between owners and players? Yeah, um, you know, this has been a very difficult time for, for players, and, um, you know, first and foremost because of the pandemic. Uh, we've had to deal with something that uh, – we've never had to deal with we've had to been we've been pulled away from soccer um many guys have been sequestered in a way to just be in their own homes and their own apartments um for some that's only 500 square feet so um 
you know, that has been a mental, um, a mental issue just really from the start in March. Uh, you fast forward to what we've been, been dealing with really behind the scenes, mostly on the bargaining committee and the executive board. That was pushed upon them most recently in about the last couple weeks. And so to give you an idea from a timeline standpoint, that's when the, the talks of Orlando started to pick up. That's when the discussions uh, really along the lines of, um, you know, what are we, what's going to happen with our CBA? How do pay cuts fit into that? Um, those are the real conversations that we started to have and we needed to open up our, to our, our broader player pool. We have 729 players, I want to say, in the player pool. That's a lot of players to try to manage. Um, so, you know, to give you an idea, we only had about, about 100 guys, a little less than 100 guys who were dealing with this really from mid-March on. But, you know, most recently we've had to try to get everybody up to date on these issues because they were going to have a vote. They were going to be entitled to a vote. Um, and we wanted to make sure they were best educated to make the best decision for themselves and for their families uh, and hopefully for the player pool going forward. Saying that, uh, you know, this last week has been um, a quite emotional week. You know, you, you, we, we were dealing with something totally different here in the Twin Cities, obviously, as I touched upon. Um, and then you pile on, you know, on Sunday evening, the threat uh, of a lockout from the league. It was the first time in my tenure that uh, I've ever seen the word lockout come across the table. You'll, you'll, you'll understand that it's not a word that's very, much, very often used when we're at the negotiating table, even when we're discussing CBAs in the past years, um, it's a very serious thing and something we take very serious. So to get that uh, in written form on Sunday evening was a great disappointment um, for the player pool. And you talk about the relationship. Um, you know, we came out of that CBA that we agreed upon on February 6th and believed that we really had started a partnership with the league. We believed it had taken a long time, but we thought that we were starting to be treated a little bit fair if you will. And uh, I think we've taken many steps back from that uh, just with how things were, were handled uh, from the league side to the player side. I understand we're not entitled to everything and we're not, uh, we're not in any way going to tell the league what to do, but I think being included in some of the important conversations would have helped this process. So whether that be Orlando and the structure of Orlando, whether that be going from feeling like we were on a good negotiation path to a threat of a lockout, if you don't accept our deal, um, those are some tactics that I would do as bowling and really just power plays. And, um, you know, I don't think players take too kindly to that. And I'm also thankful that cooler heads, at least on our side of the table, did prevail. Ethan, good to see you again. Kind of stemming from that, what you just said, would you characterize, nobody wants to take a pay cut under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. Would you characterize the resolution as satisfactory for you guys or just necessary for you guys at this point? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, you bring up pay cuts. We had, we had such a division on pay cuts. We had guys who were actually willing to take greater pay cuts. Um, and we had guys who really had no interest. So it was a little bit all over the board. And when I say guys, I'm referring not to our team. I'm saying league wide. And so trying to manage that, trying to juggle that, you know, a lot of the talk was, was it pay cuts or was it Orlando? I would rather not go to Orlando. So you're trying to manage all those things. And I think we were able to do that to the best of our ability. So I would, I would define it as a satisfactory outcome um, for the most part, but there's absolutely parties who are disappointed in the outcome, whether it be the decision to go through with Orlando, Orlando at this point, um, and, and the decision on some of the, you know, CBA negotiations. Um, but I think that that's a good thing in a way that, that, that we have a, a group that is aspiring, in my opinion, to better the league and players are going to be at the forefront of making this league great. The potential this league has is great, but that will only go as far as the players can take it. 
Just real quickly, I I don't know how much you guys pay attention to what's happening in other leagues, specifically Major League Baseball. With, with them kind of going through their situation and nobody obviously wanted to take a pay cut, and I know nobody probably would like to take a pay cut in your guys' league as well, but how much have you guys been paying attention to that situation, how kind of toxic, maybe too strong of a word to use that situation is unfolding to hope to kind of prevent that with Major League Soccer? Do not be mistaken. The league backed down on their lockout threat, and that was due to players being um, united and having solidarity. We were very much prepared to take a vote that I'm quite positive would have failed on their their last and final proposal that they had suggested on Sunday evening. And over the next 48 hours, you know, they were, they were, you know, in a little bit of a panic mode trying to figure out how to salvage this thing. You know, look at it. There's no winners in a lockout. We would absolutely be crushed. Uh, players' careers would end, uh, be devastating. We understand that. You know, one thing that I would say is we're not, you know, many of our players are not in the financial situation that MLB players are. So they obviously have more money. They also have more to lose. So we try not to compare ourselves too much, at least from a PA standpoint. Um, maybe the ownership groups possibly do. I do think it was a, a big miscalculation on the league's part uh, with the timing, you know, in the middle of a pandemic to, to really go down that road of a lockout because, you know, we had, we really have, in my opinion, uh, negotiated pretty much in good faith and made great progress. What we were talking about were very important things, which is why at the end of the deal, it's very hard to close. But, you know, I think the biggest deliverable that we were able to give is this Orlando tournament. And as, as more details emerge for you guys, you'll understand what the sacrifices that players were willing to make while taking a pay cut on top of that. You know, I think the players are um, as pleased as could be, you know, given the current circumstances, um, you know, with, with how the, the, the last couple of weeks have played out in terms of, you know, being able to come to an agreement. Um, at the same time, I, I think that, you know, the, you know, Commissioner Garber using the, the ultimate threat of a lockout, you know, over the weekend was something that left a, a really, a really strong mark on the player pool. And, um, you know, it's, it, I think it uh, kind of, you know, lit a fire under a lot of guys that were otherwise probably, um, neutral on a lot of things. So, you know, from that position, it, it got a little bit more passionate and emotional than, you know, I, I think it otherwise would have. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, we came to an agreement that, you know, protects both sides, protects our interests through the rest of this season, um, while also helping the league with a substantial amount of, um, you know, revenue loss that they're, they're going to be incurring. Um, but you know, it's, these times are, we're not, we're not, we don't, we never wanted to make it a, a public display of, you know, you know, things where you're talking about losing money because the, the fact of the matter is in the current economic, uh, environment and the current social environment, it, it's, it would have fallen on deaf ears and, and it was nothing that the players wanted to, to get to. So. Um, we were willing to compromise on a number of issues while also protecting a number of issues that were that were automatically um, things that had to be part of the CBA. So uh, I don't think that we overreached and I don't think that we were, um, you know, insensitive to the league and the way that we handled ourselves. Uh, so I think that we could be very proud of the way that we handled our, our side of the negotiation during this time. What was your 
your personal reaction and then also, I guess, the, the reaction of, of the team in general um, when the league kind of threatened a lockout over the weekend if, if you guys didn't agree to the current proposal? Yeah, I mean, personally, I kind of knew that was their biggest threat the whole time. Um, obviously, throughout the pandemic and and any CBA negotiation, really, the, their biggest leverage is a lockout. You know, it was unfortunate the way they presented it. Um, but I wasn't as shocked, but it really upset, you know, the player pool. And I think that obviously led to us not going to voluntary training the last couple of days and hopefully was, you know, one of the reasons that the, the league reconsidered uh, their proposal and got us something that the, the whole player uh, pool felt good about. Was there ever a time you thought you might not reach an agreement and this deal wouldn't get done? Or were you pretty sure that you guys were going to work it out? Uh, yeah, there's definitely times where I, I thought, not, not only our team, but the player pool um, from the conversations we have with other reps around the league that um, players were not happy and, and did not want to be forced into a deal or even forced into an Orlando tournament. But I think, you know, when it came down to it, we found a solution that worked uh, best for the players and hopefully best for the league uh, going forward. Just to say this, you know, this negotiation process was grueling. It was challenging especially amidst you know, a global pandemic and everything that is going on you know, in the U.S. and Canada today with the murder of George Floyd. You know, although I'm relieved and I'm excited that a deal has finally been made to get us back to play, the tactics that were used by the league were very unfortunate and upsetting. Um, I'm proud that even though at some point the players had their backs against the wall, we never gave in. We stood in solidarity and we remained a unified coalition to get a deal done. I'm really happy that this is finally done with. I'm happy that we can get back to play. You know, there are more important things in the world that are going on today. Now, um, I think that having football back in mainstream, back on TV, getting games in is important because it brings everyone together. It brings people together through all walks of life, you know, different race, different color, different religion. It doesn't matter if we all come together because we love the sport and we fight for each other. So that's my statement. Jake, uh, going through this labor process, obviously it opened your, opened up your eyes to the world of professional sports. It's great to have a deal signed, um, but you mentioned the tactics, and we've been reading a lot about it the last uh, few weeks. What disappointed you the most with the, the stance that, that Don Garber and the MLS was taking, and what do you think was the, the changing point to get this deal done? Yeah, you know, um, I think a lot of players and a lot of, you know, reps throughout this process have tried to understand both sides and try to, you know, know that there must be a compromise, you know, willing to make. Um, you know, we gave up a lot of concessions. We gave up a salary, you know, cut. We gave up a year of our CBA. And, you know, going into Sunday, I personally thought that this deal would have been done. We would have, you know, had it signed and we were all content with what we were signing for. You know, when the, when the league came back with another counterproposal, you know, in the, the last hour of, you know, um, negotiating with a new stipulation and a threat of a lockout, it, it upset a lot of guys. And I think that was the turning point in this whole process that, you know, a lot of neutral guys began to sway towards, you know, we need to fight 
for what we think is right and what we think we deserve. So what we did was we stood together, you know, as you guys know, we didn't go to training and, and that's, you know, a tough thing to do, but it was the tough things that kind of made this possible for the league to ultimately, you know, fold and give us what we originally agreed on. So Ethan Finlay, Evan Bush, Zach McMath and Jake Nerwinski there giving their thoughts on the agreement, the threat and lockout, how it's left them feeling and a few other things as well. Now I just picked audio there from four players, a couple of which I was on the call for, but this was repeated at every team by every player that basically spoke to the media. There was a, a lot of comments about well, you, you learn a lot about who you're dealing with in a situation like this. How disrespected they all felt. How angry they felt. And how, despite this being a CBA that's agreed for five years, the, the animosity, I think, between the players and the league is going to be felt deep for a long, long time. And if things blow up again, if, if the coronavirus blows up again in a second or third wave... It's not going to be easy negotiations between the two parties, I, I, I can tell you that. But despite the agreement, we know there's an Orlando tournament coming up. There's still an awful lot of questions to to be answered around that. That was something else the players talked about in great length this week. We're going to look into some of those issues and hear from some of the players in the second part of tonight's show. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. I am the only one searching for you. And if I get caught, then the search is Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was the first song of our new Artist of the Month for June, American band Pavement, with a song from their 1992 watery domestic EP, Frontwards. You can also find that song on the extended version of their slanted and enchanted CD as well. Pavement's one of my all-time favourite bands and we're going to have four songs coming up this month from them. Hope you enjoy them as much as I will enjoy playing them. But back to the football chat now. At the time of recording this podcast, which is Sunday the, the 7th of June, there's still a lot of questions and 
a lot of unknowns and unanswered things that players and fans and just everyone connected with the teams that are still looking for. We're going to kind of look at some of those in this part, along with some audio from the players just expressing their thoughts on the, the issues and their concerns as well, because there still are a lot of concerns. And when you're looking at everything that's going on in the US just now, you've still got rising numbers of COVID cases. The virus certainly does not seem under control there. So there's a lot of questions about just exactly how safe is it going to be for everyone going down there. Now, we've heard that there is going to be testing, but it does kind of seem like there's not going to be testing every single day. One of the questions I know many people had as well was, what is going to happen We talked about it on previous episodes of this show as well. What happens with the hotel staff? Because you cannot expect them to be quarantined in that bubble for the whole time as well. Well, it turns out that they will not be quarantined in that bubble. They will be allowed to go home. They'll be allowed to mix with family and friends. But then they'll be coming into the player's space, the the player's bubble. And they are not going to get tested every day. They're going to have their temperatures checked as they arrive at the hotels, but then that's it. So for me, that is still a worry. And among the many things that I was very disappointed that Don Garber and the league said about this was that players will not just be allowed to say that they will not want to go and attend the tournament without any repercussions. Now, there are some reasons that that players will be able to not attend or leave the tournament early. One is if they have an underlying medical condition and that has been signed off by a doctor. Two, if they have a pregnant wife, they can start to attend the tournament and then leave when the wife does go into labour. Three, if there's a death in the family, friends, something that they have to, to go home for, or if it was before they left, if there was a death around that. If a player decides though that he just does not want to attend, then that's a whole different thing. And Garber has made it clear that any player that refuses to attend will face some punishment. Now, I know you're going to have some people listening to this saying, well, this is their job. They can't refuse to go. This is a a whole different scenario as far as I'm concerned. And if a player has genuine concerns or just does not want to go, I I feel that's fair. I, I just don't think you can question that with everything that is happening. The way the US has handled things with this virus has been appalling from watching from afar. I don't know, I certainly would have some qualms about heading down for a tournament or for any reason actually right now. A number of the players have spoken out about that this week, so I want to bring you a little bit of audio from two of them now. First from Montreal Impact goalkeeper and their player rep Evan Bush. And then we're going to hear from a man that this affects from two of those three reasons. One, he has diabetes. Two, he has a pregnant wife that is due to give birth in July. And that's Vancouver Whitecaps midfielder Andy Rose. So let's hear what they have to say. Maybe give us your thoughts on uh, leaving your family and going down to Orlando and centralizing there. Um, what kind of a challenge was that uh, aspect of this? Uh, for the players union to get over uh, because Don Garber said earlier today that opting out of this is is not an option for the players unless there's some sort of 
um, medical situation? Yeah, I mean, that was obviously the first concern for everybody. It, it wasn't the, the financial side or anything like that or the, you know, the, the resort-like conditions that MLS tried to sell us on for this. It was, okay, that's all, that's all fine and, and whatnot, but what do we do with our families who we're not just leaving in, in a normal situation? It's not like we're going to preseason here for three, four weeks where that's an understood time away from family and uh, you can make arrangements and whatnot. Uh, we're leaving our families in the middle of a global pandemic. And for some markets, it's worse than others. And as you guys all know, this, um, you know, our particular market is, is still struggling a bit more than other markets in that sense. So, um, you know, for, for our team, we have a lot of guys that have families. We have guys that have pregnant wives. Um, other guys have, you know, issues in, in terms of, you know, just uh, the way that they perceive the, the virus and, and what they're putting themselves into. So there was a lot of fear and trepidation in terms of going down there and putting ourselves into, um, you know, uncertain circumstances and even more so for the families that will be leaving behind in that time. So, you know, Don was 100% accurate and he, he communicated that to us that um, if there are people with, you know, wives that will be giving birth, they can leave. Um, if there's people with uh, family members that pass away during that time, they can leave with no punishment. Um, if there's people with underlying health conditions and it's, it's written off by uh, doctors, then they're, they'll be excused from the tournament. Um, you know, what's still to be seen is if a, a guy just doesn't want to go, um, what the, the punishment will be. And I'm sure that there's going to be guys, you know, throughout the league that still are opposed to it. Uh, like you've seen in, um, I think the, the English, English Premier League is the most noticeable example of that with Troy Deeney and Nicolo Conte both opting out of training sessions because of their fears. Um, and that's 100% understandable. Uh, I have a family, um, you know, a wife and three children who, you know, I, I do all the grocery shopping during this time. I, I go to the stores for them. Uh, so now to, to have the next conversation with our individual clubs in terms of what kind of services can the individual clubs offer during this time that we're away to, to kind of bridge that gap and ease the tension for the families that are left behind, not only for the families, but for the players in Florida so they can focus on doing their jobs. And that's a big part of it. Um, like I said at the start, it's a much bigger part of it than the economics are even for many of the guys. And, you know, to be fair to, to MLS and, and uh, the folks setting up this tournament, it started out as an eight-week stay in, in Orlando, which was pretty much a non-starter for the players. There was no way in the middle of a global pandemic that you were going to get 700 guys um, probably more than half of which have families that they'd be leaving in their markets to go down there for that long. So they heard our public outcry, or I should say our, our, our outcry within the conversations and discussions. And they cut that down to what could in theory be, um, you know, a three to, to six week stay, depending on if we're able to train in markets a little bit uh, before going down there. So, you know, it, it was a difficult thing for a lot of guys to grasp. I'm sure there's a lot of guys that are still having fears, um, you know, about leaving their families. And, um, you know, it's something that we're going to have to, to figure out. But, yeah, to answer your question, it's, uh, it, it's certainly still something that will be 
uh, discussed in the weeks coming up as far as, you know, how we're going to deal with that. And I, I think that we're going to have to really develop a protocol guidelines um, in terms of what those services are. But, uh, you know, I, I trust our club. I trust the, the people, the administration uh, to, to, to really help us, you know, through this whole time, even the last few days when uh, we, we had stopped attending the voluntary workouts, the, the club had continued to provide our fee our provide our families with meals during those times. So it's a, it's a discussion and a conversation that, you know, we're, we're going to have, I'm sure. And it's, and it's one that, you know, I think the club is going to be able to help us out in certain ways. I was just on a, a call with Evan Bush there in Montreal, and he mentioned that players can be excused from the tournament for having a pregnant wife, if there's a death in the family, and if they get maybe a doctor's note saying that there's an underlying health condition. Now, obviously, your wife is pregnant and you have diabetes. What about your situation in this? It's like, we also don't know about quarantine, what's going to happen if you have to return, do you have to do 14 days quarantine? So, so how is this affecting you personally? Hey, Michael. Yeah, I suppose I, I checked two of the three boxes there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's like Jake and Axel both said, this thing is uh, seems to change, has been changing every day. And so my mindset throughout the whole thing has been, uh, you know, I've, I've been incredibly support, supported by my wife, who's been, uh, who's been fantastic, obviously a very stressful situation uh with her being june in in july and and my mindset has been until a deal is in place let's let's just take it day by day um obviously now so thrilled that a deal is in place and and obviously you know for all of us we've the number one thing is we've all wanted to to get back on the pitch and, and at some point play in front of fans so my personal situation is a tricky one i know there's other other guys around the league in the same spot um you know the club has been brilliant in in talks throughout the last couple of weeks about what could happen what potentially is going to happen i certainly uh you know i i'll say i haven't made a, a complete decision on that yet i need to get all the details and obviously i need to have uh face-to-face -face conversations with with mark and with axel um that'll happen you know this week hopefully um yeah, like you said, it's it's a tough one. I think my mindset, first and foremost, is with the team and with my wife. You know, in terms of diabetes and health-related issues, um, I'm very comfortable going. Um, it's really just the, the decision will come down to, to timing. Um, missing the tournament would be a very difficult thing for me to take, and, and missing the birth of a child, of course, for anybody, would be a really difficult thing to take. So, um I need to have some conversations now that things are, are set in stone and, and we have a plan moving forward. There's going to be difficult conversations. Um, and uh, that's kind of where my head is at so far. Of course, I want to be training as if I'm going. Um, and we'll, we'll just have to, again, kind of take it day by day. And and I have to thank the club so far. have been, been tremendous. Obviously, with the two-week quarantine you mentioned, that's kind of – the really underlying difficult thing because if it's a situation where I can go and, and, and if I need to get on a flight back, um, you know, that would maybe be in a really difficult situation, the ideal circumstance, whether or not that's realistic, I'm not sure, you know, by that point, will the border be open? We have, we have no idea. So a lot of moving pieces, but uh, I appreciate your question and, um, you know, don't have a, a straight yes or no answer just yet. 
So Montreal's Evan Bush and the Whitecaps Andy Rose there sharing some insight and thoughts on the issues of players attending, being able to leave, what factors it is that means that they don't have to attend. And it, it certainly is going to be a, a tough decision for Andy Rose. It, it's not one I envy him. He wants to get back playing. He wants to contribute to his team, be a teammate. But at the same time, you have to look after yourself and your family. Evan Bush as well talked about the fact that right now, he's the one that's having to do all the grocery shopping for his wife. So now his wife and family have to kind of decant down to the US, to Ohio, to be with parents so that they're in an environment as well. It's just one of the the many reasons that I feel this tournament seems a little bit rushed, a little bit unnecessary. Yes, we all want football back. Yes, we want to be watching our, our teams play again. I know there's safety precautions in place, but there are just so many questions of, well, what happens with this? What happens if this happens? How many people would it take to get tested for there to to possibly be the, the tournament cancelled? And apparently there is no magic number for that. You're also looking at cross-border travel. The US-Canadian border is closed until June 21st. Sportsmen and women have an exemption for that. They are able to travel down to the US. So the teams from Vancouver, from Montreal, from Toronto, they can go down and play this tournament in Orlando. But one of the other questions then is, what happens when the players return? Because right now, everyone that's returning from from the US to Canada has to have a 14-day quarantine period. No exceptions. Sports people are not exempt from that. So you're going to have... Whitecaps players getting back into Vancouver, having had all this freedom in the province from from us doing so well at controlling the virus, being able to go out and about and do stuff, then having to self-quarantine for 14 days. Now, yes, that might change by the time this tournament finishes. We know that teams are likely to be away from between four to six weeks maximum. If the Whitecaps or Montreal or TFC go deep into the tournament, That could mean that they don't return back to Canada until end of July, start of August. What restrictions will be in place then? We don't know. It could be seven-day quarantine. might be no quarantine whatsoever. I'd be very surprised if that was the case, though. So for me, that's a genuine question to ask the league. Why are you expecting these players to then have to go back and they're going to have to quarantine for for two weeks? So that was a question I put to to both Evan Bush and to Whitecaps' Jake Norwinski. Let's hear what they had to say on that. I just wanted to ask about the cross-border travel. Now, obviously, Canadian players have been cleared to go down to the US. Do you know what the situation is going to be like when you return to Canada? Are you going to have to quarantine for 14 days, seven days? Yeah, great question. And a question that honestly um, is is one that not only our team is is interested in, but, uh, you know, during the time that that will be in Orlando. My wife and family will more than likely travel to Ohio to be with, um, you know, my family down there and, and my in-laws down there. So uh, I have the same question. And a lot of it is dependent upon what happens with the border restrictions. And I, I'm obviously not a border patrolman. I'm not uh, someone involved in the, the government, but I would assume by, July or August that the border restrictions will be kind of lessened or eased up a little bit and the quarantine may or may not be in effect. But, you know, if we were to travel back today, then the quarantine would be in effect. And we've had a couple guys on our team 
one of them had gone to England and one of them had gone uh, to the U.S. during the the lockout period, not the lockout, but the lockdown period uh, where we were not training at all. And they, they were subject to the 14 day quarantine when they came back. So um, if nothing changes, then yeah, we'd be subject to the 14 day quarantine. Um, but from my understanding, there would be a, a little bit of a gap after the Orlando tournament anyway, um, in terms of what MLS wants to try to do with the remainder of the season. Um, so it may or may not affect training uh, and games anyway, but uh, it's certainly something that we'll have to keep an eye on. Just, just kind of to follow that up then with Jake, obviously there is a lot of confusion as to, or well, not confusion, but no one really knows what's going to happen at the end of this tournament with you guys coming back into Canada. Right now, it looks like you would have to quarantine for 14 days. That's going to be tough. Are you just going to have to take that in the flow and just see what happens, see if there's any relaxation by the time the tournament finishes? Yeah, you know, I, I listen to the news like you do probably every single day. Um, it's always changing. Right now, that's what the, the rule is. It's in place. Um, you know, I have a fiancé here that is, you know, going to be here alone for that long. And it would be unfortunate to be in the same city and have to quarantine away from her for another two weeks. But if that's the case, you know, that's what it is. You know, we are, we're finally back to playing. Um, I've wanted, you know, to get back to playing for a long time. And I think this is just part now of the job that we both, you know, my, my fiance and I both accept. And it's, yeah, that's really it. It's upsetting, but it's something that has to be done. So Evan Bush and Jake Norinsky there. And it is a very valid question. But the, the players on the whole seem to, to know that this is going to have to happen or likely to happen and they are prepared for that because they want to get back playing. They want to get back to doing their job. But the thing with this tournament is the details still seem to be getting thrashed out. We've had word that it's going to be a three group games. The top two from each group will then advance to the knockout round. Teams that don't advance will then be able to go back to their home markets. All points won in those group games will count towards the the regular season standings and the plan seems to be that after this tournament there'll be a a little bit of a gap and then MLS are looking to have altogether a 21-game season. So you've had the two games that teams have played so far before the shutdown, these three group games from down in Orlando and then there's going to be 16 further games over the rest of the year. The hope is to have teams playing in their home cities Eight home games, eight away games. Again, that could cause issues for the Canadian teams if every time they come back from the US they have to go into quarantine. I mean, that in itself is clearly unworkable and unfeasible. Does that mean that the Canadian teams have to play all their games on American soil? If that is the case, then they're going to have to decamp to the US for months on end, and I don't think that is acceptable. As for the knockout round... One of the burning questions that I've had is just what is the point of having this knockout round apart from having some product to put on TV? The murmurs that have come out this week seem to indicate that the plan is that whoever wins this tournament overall will secure a berth in the next CONCACAF Champions League but that will only apply to American teams. It's a replacement for them for the US Open Cup winner. So say TFC, Montreal, the Whitecaps win this tournament. What benefit do they get from this? It's a a question I want to know. 
Not been able to get any answers to that so far. Maybe things will be made a little bit clearer. Maybe the teams that are in the knockout round will get some kind of waiting towards the, the playoffs at the end of the season. I asked Jake Nowinski if this was something that had maybe cropped up during the, the players' talks, and here's what he had to say on that. We've heard that the Orlando tournament, the, the three group games will count towards the, the regular season. So what I'm not really understanding about the tournament is, what then is the point of the knockout stage? What, what do clubs get out of that? Have you been told that it might get you waiting towards a playoff place? Or like, why, why have the knockout round? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, as of right now, you know, we still don't have all the, you know, full details ironed out. We, I don't have an answer for you at the moment. Um, I just know that I think it is important that if we are playing games, in Orlando, that these three group stage games do count towards the season. I think, you know, it, it is a good idea to do that because it's important to kind of make up for lost time in a way. And it kind of gets us rolling into the fall. But as for, you know, the knockout stage right now, um, I don't have the full details for you. We're still, you know, figuring that out. Yeah. Okay. So as you heard from Jake there, no, there, there isn't really any words yet as to, to why this knockout round even has to take place or what the benefits of that are to the Canadian teams. It seems to be a fast-moving situation. Things might come out in the, the coming week to explain this a little bit more, but it's a question I'm going to keep asking whenever we get the chance and jump on different conference calls, so we'll see what comes out of that. The only thing we know is that this tournament is definitely going ahead. An unknown Dallas player has tested positive for the coronavirus this week. He seems to be the... Only the second player revealed by the, the MLS teams after Kasper Przbilko from Philadelphia Union very early on in this. I'd be amazed if there hasn't been more, but I, I guess they've either kept it under wraps or these players have just miraculously avoided getting any virus so far. Who knows what the, the next week will bring with regards to this tournament? But whatever it does, we'll talk about that in next week's show. But that's it for this part. We're going to be joined in the next part by Zach just to have a little chat about the, the latest happenings in MLS and get his thoughts on it all. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Lucas Cavallini. You're listening to the AFT Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And that was the first song in our Three of a Kind segment for tonight. From 1992, Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. And a song called The Only Living Boy in New Cross. 
from their album 1992, A Love Album. For anyone that hasn't listened to the show before, or for anyone that has and just needs a little reminder, for the last couple of weeks we've been playing a song at the starts of parts 3, 4 and 5 that are all linked in some way. They could be linked by a band, a place, a subject matter, a whole host of things. Your job over the next couple of parts is to try and work out what that link might be. And if you've worked it out by the end of Link 2, see if you can come up with what song might be the final part at the start of Part 5. Let's see if you can work out what the link is this week. So, in the first couple of parts, we've looked over the the MLS return to play, the lockdown being averted and all that kind of stuff. To chat a little bit more about it, Zachary Adam Meisenheimer. How are you doing this week, Zach? Uh, I'm doing well. It's great to be with you as always, Michael. Well, let's just get straight to it. We recorded the show last Sunday. When we recorded, it looked like everything was going to be agreed. The MLS Players Union had signed off and stuff. Everything was looking hunky-dory. Then all of a sudden, MLS throw it back in their faces and say, nope, you have to accept our terms or there's going to be a lockout. When you heard that, what was your immediate thought? Yeah, it was crazy because I think we recorded it a little bit earlier in the, the day than normal. Last yeah, week maybe. And uh, see, so yeah, I, I did see it later in the evening, and uh, I mean, it felt. I mean, it felt a little bit weird just because the times were in. Like, what, what's, what sports league wants to walk, lock up their players and take away their health health coverage when you're in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah. Like, so it just felt like. And maybe I'm misunderstanding some of the, the details of it all, but it just felt like it just felt like totally not the right approach to take. It felt like a terrible PR from a PR perspective. It just seemed like wrong in so many ways. Wrong, but also not surprising. In oh, oh, in no, some yeah. in some ways. I mean it still was surprising because there is a pandemic on and it looked like the deal was done. It was just it was disappointing. And we've heard, yeah, we've heard from a lot of players in this episode, and there's been so much stuff written. I read some stuff from Jeff Carlisle today, where players are saying that this has damaged the relationship between the players and the the league. One senior player said irreparably. Chris Wondolowski said he's glad he's retiring at the end of this year because he does not want to be part of the negotiations in five years' time because. It just looks bad. And another player who didn't want to be named says that the animosity between the two parties is even worse than it was back in 2015. Wow. So it's like, it feels things have gone back to square one after we had praised the work between the two parties and get the new CBA drawn drawn up to begin with. But there's the new force majeure clause as well. And it was going to be tied into attendance that if, I think it was five teams in the league, if they suffered 25% attendance falls, then they could invoke force majeure. Now, we've yeah. seen attendances drop around the league for a number of reasons. Just look at the Whitecaps. Attendances dropped last year for off-the-field measures. Yeah. So you could have something like that invoked, whereas now it can still be invoked by either side, but it's not tied to attendance. So at least there's that. But that that is still a worry because you don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic going forward. Yeah, exactly. I remember her. I forget who it was. It was someone who tweeted. Uh, it might have been like Sam Stachical or someone uh, whose tweets 
like have been for someone who used to be paid by a, you know the league in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, his tweets have been quite feisty, which is nice to see. Um, but one of those guys said uh, that all MLS would need to do to get those numbers is actual report the actual number of people in the stadium. Yes. The tickets sold, and they would have their their out clause or whatever. Yeah, I mean that that is. I mean we're laughing about it, but that is entirely true because yeah. we know the it's it's tickets sold as opposed to those attending. You just have to change how you report that, and then and the whole thing changes. Yeah. But I mean, th- thankfully, the lockout was averted. I say thankfully. I was kind of rooting for the lockout because I thought this is a chance the players need to make a stand. I talked about this in the second part. They made the stand. And let's not make any bones about it. The league backed down. The players did well here. But both sides, I don't think, come out of this as winners. It was just unnecessary worry, unnecessary burden. And from from reading, again, referring to to Jeff Carlyle's article on on ESPN.com, players are saying they don't feel that they've won this because there's still a lot of players in the, the player pool that don't want this Orlando tournament to go ahead, but they have no choice. They have to play it. Yeah, I I agree that this. If I was a player, I would not be excited about about this, uh, especially with you know there's so many variables that could cause this to go really really wrong really really quickly. Yeah, in one sense, they both win, they both lose. I guess I I don't I I mean I guess I'm on the record on the show of saying like I kind of was looking forward to there being, uh, you know, the players not backing down in the original TBA negotiations earlier this year. I would love to have seen them fight for even more or try and get even more. Um, And I honestly thought that there could have or was going to be some kind of disruption or some kind of bigger ordeal around that, similar to last time, but even similar, similar to 2015, but even more significant or, you know, maybe causing a week or two to be missed of the season. Um, but yeah, I mean, the way the, I still can't believe the owners, in one sense, I can't believe that the owners, through their mouthpiece, Don Garber, you know, said, we're going to lock you out. I, I know, and the the reason that players feel that they haven't won in this is, over the five years of the CBA, the league are actually going to recoup about $100 million than they would have done if the normal CBA had existed. So that the players are worse off by that amount. So there's that. And, I mean, we're talking about the owners, Don Garber. He says he's taken responsibility. It was his decision to threaten the lockout. But despite him saying that, you have to feel there's a lot of owners that wanted that to happen. I, I said in an earlier part that hopefully not all owners. You'd like to think that there were some owners out there that fought against this, and it wasn't un- unanimous, but... It's something that we'll never know. Thankfully, it was averted, but players have made this comment, and I feel the same. It kind of shows, really, what the league is is like. It shows their true colours, and I think it was Daniel Lovitz that that said, it it just shows the true nature of who you're negotiating at a time like this. Oh, undoubtedly. Like, I think, think, yeah, it's it's both, both those things. It's Garber... Garber taking the hit because it's easier for him to take the hit than for the owners to look bad, and that's partly like uh, his job description. And and secondly, I think it shows his and the league's true colors. This is they, you know, they're willing they're willing to do uh, they're willing to to do and say uh, such such foolish 
things at, at a time like this because all they care about is making as much as they can. Like it's all you know, it comes just down totally just the money. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even think they're they're going to make that much. But I mean, I, I was saying earlier that one thing we know is the Orlando tournament is going ahead. Now, since I recorded that this afternoon, there was an, an interesting tweet that, that was sent to me that I, I tweeted out tonight. It's from a, a guy called Charles Fishman, at C Fishman on Twitter. And he gave a, a snapshot of the, the coronavirus in, in a couple of US states. And in Florida, where 26 teams are now heading, the last four days has seen the most new cases in any four-day period since the pandemic began. Now, this was a state that felt they had things under control and they opened things up earlier than a lot of other places in the US. And now they're kind of reaping the, the downside of that and they're having numbers through the roof. They're having really high numbers. We're about to send 26 teams and officials and referees and everything into there. And as I mentioned earlier, you're going to be having hotel staff that are going to be coming and going, not tested every day, just having the temperatures tested. They could be asymptomatic. And I mean, it's it's very, very concerning. It's scary. If I was a player reading that, I'd be like, why are we going into this hotspot? And it would take a lot to reassure me. Maybe that's just me overreacting. But, I mean, I've had a couple of people tonight since I tweeted that out saying they could see this, if this gets worse, that the Orlando tournament doesn't even go ahead. Yeah. Is this uh, self-induced second wave in some of these places uh, is very, very unfortunate. But in terms of this MLS thing, it, like, again, if you're a player, who wants to go to Florida right now? Yeah. Like, I, I can't imagine... And I know there's out there's out there's options out for different players for different reasons or whatever, uh, or you know limited options out for different players. But like, it, uh, I would not want to go there. Uh, I would not want to go into these circumstances and these conditions. Um, it would be different. It might be different if it was a true quarantine in terms of like, hey, the the resort staff or whatever are going to be. Yeah, you know, if it was a complete bubble, that might be different. But, yeah. The way it is now, this I would not want to take this risk, especially if I was in a family with someone who's high risk, or I had any desire to not get the virus, the, the virus, or to see my family, you know, relatively quickly when I got home. Yeah, I, I, it, it, I, I know it's their job and all that kind of stuff, but like, it, it just sounds it sounds like this the, the risk for this to cause the, the virus to spread to players, and then through teams and all that kind of stuff just sounds so high that I wonder if these new developments will actually impact this going forward. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're not going to know for the for the next week, two weeks, and, and see how it happens. It might just be a temporary spike. It seems unlikely, but I mean, you, you never know. Players were back from this coming week. They're going to be back to full contact training as well. Which, I mean, here in Vancouver, we're doing really well. You don't want to be blasé or complacent about it. But obviously, that's not maybe as big a risk here as it is in some of the, the other places. But, I mean, that that's the start of everything getting geared up for this tournament. And I talked about it in the last part. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, harping on about it. But the, the tournament, the three group games that count towards the regular season, 
I understand that, it makes sense. I still cannot get my head around why they're having this tournament. They've now, word has come out that whoever wins this tournament will get a, a Champions League berth, but that's only going to apply to the American teams. I just don't see what this knockout round offers the Canadian teams, and there might be stuff still to come out because things still aren't finalised, but they have to offer these teams something, or these games are a risk for these players for no real reward. I think the, na- the napkin just got wet, and so we don't know what it said on the, on the bottom. <laughs> so we have to, to, re- have to rewrite that on a new napkin at some point, in terms of what the, what the knockout stage is actually going to mean. But, it, I mean, it is, it, this all seems kind of kind of farcical that they're having a quote-unquote tournament without, you know, for no reason. Right, like it, it makes it makes sense to come together and yeah, play I guess play league matches and, and whatever. Especially if you, especially I've heard some people talk about this. Especially if they were going to do like, hey, we're coming to this place, you're going to play a number of league matches, and so like, because if they're going to do, they're going to do more games after this, right? So well, yeah, that that's, that's again not been confirmed, but it looks like MLS the talks. I think it was Evan Bush, yeah, it was Evan Bush that that mentioned this on on the conference call that they're wanting a 21 game season. So you've got the two already, the three group games, and then eight home, eight away. Which, depending on travel, further outbreaks, cross-border stuff, that might not even be possible. Right. So I guess like, this, this uh, bringing everyone together for three games seems way too short. But it should be more than that. But they should be, if, if they really are committed to having a, trying to make something look like, like a league, you should be playing teams that you are harder for you to travel to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like all your games should also like, you know, there should be no Cascadia derbies at this. This should be all like, you know, playing East Coast teams so that later on you know, avoid some of those other issues like the travel issues with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. You could say, yeah, you played all these, you know, far away teams and now you're just going to play in your region for the next, as much as possible for these next 16 games or whatever. I mean, there's, there's still so many unknowns about it and that's kind of crazy when you think that this tournament is set to get underway in less than a month and players are set to head down there in a, in about two and a half weeks to, yeah. to not have all this thrashed out, which in Jeff Carlyle's article, a lot of the players were talking about that they felt this was getting rushed because MLS had committed to this tournament and the date was getting closer, so they had to have a resolution, they had to force forced their hand and it's like I don't know why we're rushing into this and the peak of the summer as well when it's going to be so hot there and you're yeah. we've talked about the stupid kickoff times now because of that right. you're also the NBA's confirmed that they're going there as well so you're just adding another group of, of players and I'm sure they'll be kept apart and it's a big big complex as I've talked about before but you're just bringing all these people to, to a state that seems to currently be undergoing a bit of a mess I wonder, uh, I don't know if you talked about it on a previous episode or we had talked about it, uh, but I, I do know that, like, for example, with the Bundesliga, uh, there are some uh, reasons why it's helpful for the league to be done before the end of June, and I think it has something to do with, like, their contractual agreements with some of their partners and sponsors. And yeah, stuff. it was that, plus a lot of the players' salaries officially right. ran out at the end of June, right. but FIFA said that can be extended, but uh, there was a lot of sponsorship and broadcast deals. Right. That's why the well, English that, Premier well, League... I wonder if it obviously would be different, but yeah. I wonder if the sponsorship or TV or some kind of reason that they 
need to get this started in, you know, by the end of June or whatever kind of thing. I wonder how much pressure they're getting in that sense. Pro- probably some of that. I mean, the English Premier League's had to pay back the, the broadcasters a, quite a lot of money, as has the, the Scottish League as well, because there's going to be games not played and in England they're not going to be finished in time. La Liga comes back this week and they're, they're going to be doing the... The thing that we've seen in some of the other broadcasts, they're going to be having like cut out fans in the crowd. They're going to be pumping in a stadium atmosphere, but it's going to be actual real fans chants taken from the EA Sports FIFA games. So, I mean, clubs and leagues are, are working on, on things to, to get back and most leagues look like they're coming back. There, there's some in, we're, we're not going to be traveling around the world with Joe this, this week, but that there's some leagues talking. There's a team in England that a lot of folk will, will know about Grimsby Town because of the whole GTFC hashtag. They've had 12 players agree to not take a wage for, for 12 months because they don't think they'll be playing football again in front of fans for 12 months. And they've said if they don't play in front of fans, then they can't survive, so there'd be no point playing. So you've got things at different ends of the spectrum where some are rushing back, some are not. You've got the rich folk that want to be back and the poor clubs are suffering. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to be too down and pessimistic about stuff, but it just it just feels that this story from an MLS point of view could have a few twists and turns yet before we actually see a ball kicked. One other thing to, to mention from MLS this week is that Alexander Katai, who was a player that I was saying when he was a free agent, the Whitecaps could maybe have made a play for at the end of last year. Maybe we dodged a bullet in that one because he was let go by the, the LA Galaxy this week after his wife tweeted a, a, a couple of tweets about the Black Lives Matter protests that were racist, that one was in Serbian that was translated as beat these shits, and apparently it wasn't the, the only things that she's posted on social media. Katai took full responsibility for it, saying it wasn't representative of him and his family. He had a meeting the next day with, with LA Galaxy, and then it was announced on Friday that, that they were parting, parting ways. Mutually agreed, I believe the wording was. I'm not 100% sure on that. I mean, it raised the questions, can a a player be responsible for something that their partner tweets? And there's a a whole discussion on that. But, I mean, you just can't tweet stuff like that and make comments like that and and think it's acceptable. Yeah, I mean, we could have a a longer conversation, or maybe we will another time, about... Well, you know, all the things going on in society right now, and it's, it's crazy. It, it's crazy to see just some of the, the what's happened. But it, in terms of this, I think her name's Amy Cooper, the lady in the park. Oh, yeah. Who, who you know, uh, the, I the recognized the police against yeah. an, you know, an African-American and man. One of the watching. sweetest men I think you could meet when you watch videos of him and stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, so that, ha- that happens, and then the, the murder of, uh, of George Floyd is like one of the you know saddest things that I, I've seen. Like I, I, few and far between that you know police brutality has actually resulted in police officers having to take responsibility for their actions. So yeah. it's interesting to see how that side of things is all playing out. But the whole the whole Black Lives Matter movement, I hope it brings about the equality that is deserved. Right? Like absolutely, people are people, and they should be treated they should be treated equally and fairly. Um, uh, it's hard. We're in Canada, 
Canada, but we in Canada are not without our own issues when it comes to treating di- you know people differently. Yeah. Um, which again, we could have long conversations and, and lots of different conversations about all that. But um, it, it's it's crazy what has happened in the last whatever it is week, week and a half, two weeks or whatever, and 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 how things. Uh, well, hopefully, there will be some positive change. You know that comes from uh, that comes from this. The, the the, I mean, you talk about uh, Florida and, and stuff happening with the pandemic there. The, the, one of the difficult things in the midst of all this is these, uh, the, some of the protests is, is happening with, you know, not, not a lot of social distancing. Uh, you wonder, like, how much of the pandemic will, could spread because of that, or that's one of the concerns I guess I've had. But uh, I guess maybe we'll see in a, in a week or two or whatever if that has any had any impact in terms of the virus. But, yeah, and yet you're, um, you're having to balance all that. To, oh, yeah. to, to try and make a needed change and then try and keep everyone safe at the same time. Yeah, and yeah it, shows, it shows how how important the issue is, right? Yeah. And, uh, people have been willing to, to say, no, I'm going to go to a public protest. But it's also, in, in, a, in, in another sense, it's also like, oh, man, I, you really hope that I hope this doesn't spread in, in these meaningful gatherings. To, to wrap this up about Katai's wife as well, it's like anyone that watches these protests and sees the horrific videos and yeah. the constant videos that you're seeing every day from a, a, around everywhere of the, the, the police acting inappropriately, to then tweet something like that, it, it just, it's mind-blowing to me because it, yeah. it's not it's not just a case because it's, it's the thing to say just now that black lives matter. Black lives have always mattered. Yeah. It just seems to be that it's now more and more people are actually pushing for the real change that that should have happened decades ago. Yeah, and to tweet something about, you know, using the, my understanding, she used the image of the police vehicle driving into the crowd. Yeah. Like, to, to, to end the main that comment, I think you quoted her, mate, like, that's just like, I don't know, that's sad and horrible that, that, that that's what she said and that's, a, that's what she was feeling. And, you know, I, yeah. It's a sad, it's a very, very... Situation. I, I mean, it, it was just an unnecessary distraction. It yeah. was not needed in a week that had seen so much unity for, from players and officials and the league itself. I mean, for for anyone that still does not understand what these protests are about and why people are saying Black Lives Matter, read up on it, educate yourself, and when you do, you'll understand all of this. But that is it for this part. We're going to return with our feature player interview for this episode in the next part, where we sit down with Montreal Impact's BC-born Joel Waterman to chat about his career to date and his journey to MLS. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Andy O'Brien, and you're listening to the AFTN radio show. Sometimes London don't seem that appealing Maybe your lover is living in Denver Going underground, head'll start to pound When you take a bus, then you'll start to cuss Maybe even swear a little bit But we've all been to Pimlico It's got a lovely gallery Thank you. 
Christopher Robin said, buy me a pie, sir. Cockles and mussels, they'll help you forget her. We could take a trip on an open bus. We could fall in love, just the three of us. I wouldn't call a cop, because we've all been to Pimlico. Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. Bringing us into this part was a song there from 1997 by an English band, Dave Devant and his spirit wife, and that was Pimlico from their This Is For Real album. That song was the second of tonight's Three of a Kind. Kicking off part three, we had Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine with the Only Living Boy New Cross. Dave Devan and his spirit wife there with Pimlico. Have you worked out what the link is yet? If you have, what could the third song possibly be? If you haven't, let's see if you can when you hear the song that kicks off part five. Now this past weekend, BC Place should have been playing host to a Canadian derby. Montreal Impact were meant to be heading west to take on the Whitecaps in MLS action. It would have been the first time that head coach Thierry Henry had actually set foot on the BC Place turf. And for one Montreal player in particular, BC boy Joel Waterman, it would have been a fantastic homecoming. Waterman made history in January, becoming the first Canadian Premier League player to be sold to an MLS team. After impressing for Cavalry FC in their debut CPL season, Montreal swooped in to sign the versatile central defender, and he'd had such a dramatic start to his Montreal career a bit before Covid hit and the shutdown happened. 17 minutes into the impact season, Champions League game down in San Jose, Costa Rica, taking on Saprissa, an injury saw Joel Wartman called into action just 17 minutes in, making his debut for Montreal, impressing and consolidating his place as a starter. He started and played the full 90 minutes in Montreal's two MLS matches so far that they've played this season, grabbing an assist in the first one in the 2-1 win over New England Revolution. It's been a fantastic start for a player that we've watched move through the ranks in the last couple of years. We've seen him play for Trinity Western Spartans, saw him play for Kitsap Pumas in the PDL, TSS Rovers, made the move to Calgary Foothills and then into the CPL with Tommy Wielden with Cavalry FC. He's a player whose game we've seen come on leaps and bounds over the last couple of years as well, starting off as a defensive midfielder, dropping back into that defensive role as a centre-back. And when Montreal signed him, their sporting director hailed the fact that Waterman can play anywhere across the back line in a back three, in a two-man central defensive partnership. We often talk about players getting their opportunity and having to seize that moment. Waterman's certainly done that. He missed out on playing at BC Place when Cavalry came to visit last year for Canadian Championship action, unfortunately being injured for that one. Deprived of a chance to come back this weekend to, to play in MLS action. But we're sure he's going to be back one day. It's a, another local lad that the Whitecaps have kind of let through their fingers. But we've got a chance to catch up with Joel this week, just to chat about his career so far, making the move to MLS and what the future may lie in store. It's our feature interview for this week. So make your favourite hot beverage, grab a chocolate digestive, sit back and enjoy a chat with Montreal Impact defender 
Joe Warman. So I, I guess first thing to to ask you, Joe, is obviously Quebec's been really badly hit with the the coronavirus and everything just now. How has the the lockdown been for you? I, I know it's been difficult not being able to get to training and probably, I guess, being far away from your family here in BC. Just talk us through what it's been like for you personally. Yeah, it's been uh, obviously a, a tough couple of months, not only for me, but you know, for everyone around the world with this whole pandemic, it's, it's something that we've never seen before. And um, it was frustrating the first couple of weeks, especially when, you know, obviously the season was halted and we were on a good run of form. And me personally, I was getting minutes. But, um, you know, after those after those couple of weeks, I kind of put things in, in perspective and, and just realized that, you know, football came second to, to the health and well-being of, of everyone basically in the world. So um, it was a bit easier knowing kind of everyone was kind of going through it. We were all in it together and, um, but yeah, it's, it's been it's been tough. Obviously, I knew I'd be away from my family anyways, but they were planning to, to come to Montreal um, in June, actually. So oh, they had really? to, to cancel their trip, which is unfortunate. And then, obviously, I was going to be able to come home for, for the June 6th matchup against the Caps. But um, stuff like that, it, it makes it frustrating. But now that we're back at training, uh, things are, are looking hopeful. And, and obviously, with the whole um, MLS announcement coming out and going to Orlando and there's lots of stuff to look forward to. So um, even though we've, hopefully the worst is over and then we kind of get back to some normalcy, uh, you know, as soon as we can. Yeah, I mean, ho- hopefully that's what, what everyone's kind of looking for. And today we'll kind of, we'll have a chat a bit later on about your, your move to Montreal and stuff like that. But I kind of want to revisit your career a little bit first as well, especially for anyone that maybe hasn't known you before moving to Montreal, folks that maybe just watch MLS and nothing else. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're a BC boy. You grew up here in Abbotsford, and you're, I, I think, a, a great example to a, a lot of the youth players here because a lot of them in the past, they've only made the grade in, in MLS if they've come through uh, an MLS Teams Academy. And I know initially you were like involved with the Whitecaps system, but not in the residency program, and you came through in the end through to, through Surrey United. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it like as a youth player in BC? Because there's been a lot of talk recently that BC just does not produce top class players the way that they used to. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm kind of out of the scene now, especially um, I haven't been really back home to BC to really. Um, look too much into the the youth talent that's coming up, but especially when I was playing, there's a lot of talented kids from BC. And yeah, um, you know, in terms of of my youth career, I think I just I kind of almost bet on myself a little bit. And obviously, um, when you're on the residency as a youth or in any provincial programs, I only made it when I was 13, and and didn't make it until I was 18 again. So not being in, in those in those systems and around those players. Um, you kind of have to make your own path, and that's exactly what I did. And uh, I was lucky enough when I went to Surrey in U16 or U15 that the BCSPL was coming then a year after. So um, it was a new and improved league with, with better players and, and players I could surround myself with to, to get better. And, and again, like I said, I don't know the – I haven't really been around the landscape of, of BC football in the last, obviously, you know, four or five years since um, – being a youth, but, um, 
you know, all I can say is hopefully that they keep developing players the way they develop me. I love my time. Yeah. Um, both that, you know, Langley from U12 to, to 14, and then obviously Surrey was a massive part of my journey and is one of the top clubs in BC and still producing players. And you see... Uh, even Trinity Western this year, uh, Mike Sheeran recruited a bunch of uh, BCSBL guys that are coming through. And, you know, I, I try and, you know, kind of be that trailblazer and pave in that way because it's, it's a unique journey and unique, unique story, um, not really being uh, a part of the residency and, and those types of things growing up. But, um, again, I think BC football is still relevant. There's still talent. It's just about finding that talent and, and creating those opportunities for those players. So, for me, I hope they can continue to do that, and if I can help in any way possible, um, I'll do so. I mean, I first saw you play with, with Trinity Western, and I mean, when you first went to college, the CPL, I don't even think it was on the horizon, and then as you went through the college years, it kind of started getting talked about, and then it obviously eventually got launched. I mean, did, did you always have the plan that you wanted to, to be a professional footballer, no matter where that would end up taking you? Yeah, absolutely. Probably, I would say, when I made the BC Provincial Team in U13, that's when I really started to, to take it serious and um, really think what a dream and, and becoming a professional footballer. And I knew I was one of the best kids in BC at that time. And then, um, obviously, going through the youth system, I didn't really think too much of it, to be honest. I think I just loved playing the sport. And I knew there wouldn't be anything else in the world I'd rather do for, for a job. And um, I was aware of, of, you know, the hurdles and hardships I'd probably have to go through just being Canadian and not being in a country where football is your number one sport. It's obviously hockey. and But for me, it was always, yeah, something I just enjoyed and, and loved to do. And then uh, when I chose Trinity Western, I was definitely thinking football too. That was my number one priority. I knew where they were at in terms of their program and the success they had, I think, my last year when we, when we made Nationals, we didn't make it. Um, the last time we made it would have been 2009. So yeah. I was just so happy to be a part of that transition and that upward trajectory at, at Trinity and, and kind of building and helping that program. And But yeah, football was always a dream of mine. Um, no matter if I was going to stay in Canada or go overseas, I think that was my original plan of, of going overseas because I wasn't involved with the residency program. But um, luckily enough for me, my last year the CPL came around, and then I got drafted, and and that's how I kind of got acquired here. So um, I was very fortunate for that lead to come around. But um, yeah, like I said, it was always a dream of mine from from probably about thirteen years of age. I, I remember as well watching you play with Kitsap. I I went down to that game where you ended up playing the Sounders at, at Starfire in the US Open Cup, and I mean, did that just give you a taste for for what the pro game was going to be like? Yeah, absolutely. I think that year was, what, 20, 2016, I think, I think it was? so, yeah. So for me, that year was a massive, probably my biggest growth year in my career. I was a late bloomer, so um, 2016 was a massive year for me going to Kitsap, and it's funny because I never really thought about going to Kitsap. I didn't really want to go there, and then I went for a trial, and, and the coaching staff loved me, so it kind of all just fell into place, and, and that was honestly my biggest year of growth, becoming probably becoming a, a man and, and really knowing what the pro game looked like with obviously Cammy McDonald's experience in, in his coaching and, and he really crafted me into being, you know, who I am today and the player I am today. And those experiences again, like at Starfire with the with the Sounders, yeah, it, it definitely added to that dream I already had. 
um, because it was coming real at that point. Um, we were playing MLS clubs. We were getting looked at. We were getting scouted. And even at that time, I thought I, I, I played well and I could play at that yeah. level. And, and it just, again, it added to the dream that I, that I already had. I mean, you talk about being a, a late bloomer, and I'm I'm not just saying this because I'm chatting to you, but the last couple of years, I, I've I've seen your your game come on leaps and bounds from like watching you from college to like even at TSS and going on to foothills and, and CPL, your games just got better and better. I I think when I first started watching you playing and you're kind of playing defensive midfield role. That that's kind of one of those positions on the pitch that it's an unsexy position. It doesn't stand out. You only notice a lot of defensive midfielders when they make a mistake. Does that make it maybe a bit more difficult to to get noticed sometimes? Um. Yeah, I would say it definitely plays a part. I think a massive pro to my game is that I'm consistent. So I think at the end of the day, I just do the simple things. And like you said, it's not sexy. It's not. Uh, I'm not. You know really dribbling around players much I'm not doing step over I'm not doing those types of things and again I don't I, I still rate those kind of players that do those things especially yeah. fast wingers with pace and, and those types of things but that was just never my game and, and for me I always try to keep it consistent and, and super super simple especially especially as a six because I think the six for me is honestly the most important position on the pitch um, it, it it's a position where you kind of lead from back to front you have to do you have to go forward and make forward passes, but also, you know, learn how to defend. So, um, yeah, I would say, you know, obviously I think it's one of those positions and, and players in that position don't get, you know, a lot of, of credit sometimes when they deserve it. But, um, like I said, I just knew after I kept putting in good performances, um, it only took one coach to like me and, and one opportunity to get me to that, to that next level. And, yeah. um, like you said, the last couple of years, I've just, worked on my game and, and, and matured. I think maturity is the, the perfect word, just matured in my game and, and who I am and what I'm good at. And, and I just kept doing those things to, to get me to this point. Yeah, you spent a good couple of years of your prime development with, with Tommy Wheeldon, first at Foothills and, and then at Cavalry. I mean, that, that first season of the CPL... It was just such a, a fantastic season all round. Obviously, some of the stuff like travel and the schedule needed to be improved upon. But the season that, that Cavalry had, I know a lot of the guys that have played together with Foothill, so you had that chemistry right from the start. But when you look back at that season, I know ultimately you you didn't win the championship. And that's something I've harped on about so much that I don't understand how that's even possible that you can win the two leagues. But I know that rules are rules and all that kind of stuff. But how do you look back at that season with Cavalry? Uh, I just look back at it with amazing memories. Like you said, um, Tommy was a massive uh, part of where I am today. And um, again, maturity comes to mind. He, he allowed me to mature in the game and taught me things to, to mature in my game. And, and like I said, he, he was the one that kind of moved backwards into a centre-back role. And uh, I'm not sure... Who knows what would have happened if I stayed six, if I stayed the six. But, again, he moved back and realized the talent that I had. And um, I kind of came with my own there. And, and that was at Foothills. And, obviously, moving on to Cavalry, he trusted in me and um, gave me the opportunity to play at that next level. Uh, I think that's all what players want is just an opportunity to show what they have and take their chances. And, and fortunately for me, I, I took that chance. And um, being a part of that city and watching it literally before your eyes turn into a footballing city was, was crazy to watch. And obviously our success played a massive role in that. Um, I'm not, I won't even get started on 
you know, the dynamics of the league and, and how they <laughs> they organized it. Um, but again, I thought it was a massive, massive um, feat for us to, to obviously win the fall, win the spring. Um, and then obviously our Canadian championship run too was, was massive. Unfortunately, yeah. I was hurt for uh, the games against Montreal and the Whitecaps, but I was there watching my teammates and supporting them and I was just as happy as if I was on the pitch with them. So, and just meeting community members and just seeing how much the foot soldiers grew in a year from, you know, 15, 20 people to like 200 was an amazing thing to see for the city and, and being able to play with, yeah, my closest friend, Raj Abikubi, um, Carlos Coutinho, guys like that, that I played with at youth and, and um, had been friends with forever. It was just physical creating memories and, and, and creating a journey and, and um, I always look at it, back at it with, with amazing memories for sure. And I know your time at, at Cavalry and Montreal Sporting Director mentioned this after they signed you. You, you're, you showed your versatility because you could play anywhere along the back line in a back three. You can play the DM role. And I remember having this discussion with, with Russell Tybert here in the past. When you're a player that can play all those positions in, in a league like MLS, it's going to give you a lot more opportunities than, than players that can just play one or maybe two positions. Yeah, um, that's something I kind of had to grow into. Obviously, in 2018, when I when I started playing center back, I was always a midfielder, and um, like I said, tried it out in 2018 and and really enjoyed it. And I think my game started to develop as a modern day center back with my my vision and my passing on the ball and uh, my stature um, and how fast I grew. I almost came into a natural center back, and, and Tommy realized that and noticed that. So, yeah, I think versatility is massive. I think. Um, it's super important for, for coaches to have guys like that in your team because, again, like you said, a uh, person gets injured or, you know, different scenarios happen. If you have different guys that you can plug in different positions, it, it makes your job a lot easier. And it, it honestly gave me more opportunities to, to get minutes as well. So it, it does get difficult at times when you're switching kind of back and forth and, and it's a different mindset, obviously, in, in each position. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think versatility is massive for, for any player out there. If you can play more than one position, um, it gives you that, that extra leg on, on other players who can't. So uh, I was grateful for that. So Montreal then came in, yet you made history. You became the, the first CPL player to, to make a move to an MLS team. When did you first learn that Montreal had interest in you? Um, yeah, it was an interesting story. I think I in the off-season I was home for, for Christmas and, and being home with my family, obviously, and um, I think it was early December, some stuff popped up on social media, on, on Twitter and Instagram, and that Montreal was interested in me, and I had absolutely no idea. It was the first time I was hearing about it, and heard nothing from Tommy or, or Montreal or anyone at Montreal, and um, I thought it may have just been rumors, and I kind of let it go, and after a couple of weeks, it kind of stopped, so um, I was thinking that was it kind of thing, and and. Tommy was away on vacation at that time, actually, so that's why he didn't call me. So uh-huh. I decided to give him a ring after he came back from from vacation, and he said that that the rumors were actually true, and that he was in talks with them. And so probably late December is when I kind of found out, oh, wow. December-ish, and that they were in talks, and and um, hopefully a deal will be made. Nothing was promised, um, and at that time, I I think I just signed again for Cavalry. I think two days earlier before I heard that news, so. Um, I was already under contract with the Cavs and wasn't sure, you know, what my future held. But um, and then Tommy actually told me that back when we played Montreal in the Canadian Championship, 
he actually name dropped me to, to Remy Gard, Montreal's old manager, and just said, hey, there's a, there's a guy not playing, Joel Waterman, he's kind of one for the future, keep your eye out for him. All right. He had no, I, I had no idea that he did that, um, but he kind of told me that later in December, and, and it kind of just kind of fell into place, and probably early January, um, January, the first week of January, so January 6th, um, Tommy called me on that Monday and, and said a transfer, or the, the, the transfer papers have been sent over, there's an offer on the table, um, asked me if I would love to, to kind of make that jump, and, and obviously... Um, it was a bittersweet thing because I, we still had some unfinished business to do at, at yeah. Calgary, but again, I wanted to, to have a different experience in my career and make that jump and, and play at a higher level. And, and so, yeah, um, after that call, he called me the next day and the papers were signed and everything was done deal. And I was in Montreal by that Friday. So about two days later. Oh, wow. I, yeah. I, so it was a, it was a massive transition and it happened super, super quick all in basically one week. Uh, and then preseason was was that week on the Saturday, so we started right then and there, and, and I was transferred. I, do you speak French? I do. Yeah, a oh, little that's bit. good. <laughs> um, French immersion in in high school, and then I took some stuff in in university as well, so I can understand it pretty well. Um, just the speaking sometimes gets tough because uh, they speak a lot quicker and and faster here, yeah. so it gets tough at, at times. But I can I can hold my own. Going to like a, a major league soccer team, and you've got a legend now as a head coach in Thierry Henry. It's like, what what is that like? Do you have to kind of sometimes look and go, "That's Thierry Henry." They are giving me instructions on how to play. Yeah, I think. I, I mean, the first couple of days were definitely like that. Uh, you know, when I saw him for the first time and met him, um, just knowing what the kind of career he's had and and how good and amazing of a player he actually was and and knowing that we're going to be coached coached by him um you kind of had to pinch yourself a little bit in the first couple of days but then again it we kind of quickly got to that that professional relationship of he's the coach with the players and we have a very uh very good mutual respect between us and the team and, and we're there to make him better and he's there to make us better and it's kind of business as usual and and now we're just going to go off to the league so um, yeah, definitely for the first couple of days, it was, uh, you know, even seeing him join our, our training sessions a couple of times and just seeing, you know, his skill on the ball and what he can do with it and how strong he is and just all the assets that he has to his game. Um, it's incredible uh, because obviously, you know, like so many other footballers probably watching the Premier League growing up, you watch him and, and the big time players and it, yeah. it's kind of surreal and you kind of have to pinch yourself a little bit. But um, like I said, it, it's back to business as usual and, it's been amazing so far too. His, his, his tactics have been spot on. It's a very European style, something that that fits my kind of style, and um, he's made me better, and we've made him better. So it's it's been very mutually beneficial so far. The thing with MLS, and it, it's changing a lot now, especially here in Vancouver under a, a Canadian coach. But in the past, a lot of Canadian players they're signed by the Canadian teams, and then they're not used much, so they have to wait a while to to get minutes. You were kind of like thrown straight in at the, the deep end, a Champions League game. All of a sudden, after a few minutes, you're you're called on uh, as a sub. What what was that moment like for you? Yeah, I think it was a moment of I just tried to take it all in. Honestly, I don't I don't really have any words that can describe it because I think just having a dream for that long and working so hard and finally being at that place in front of you know twenty twenty five thousand 
crazy fans. Um, obviously, coach calling you in, and, and all I remember him saying is just ease yourself into the game. That's all I remember, and I just tried to soak it all in and be in the moment and enjoy it, but also know that you know we had a game to win too. So um, it was, it was, yeah. Again, like I said, words can't really explain just the atmosphere yeah. and and the moment of just standing on that touchline and just you know wearing the jersey and kind of knowing how many people and how many things you did to get to that point. It was, it was super exciting and and, and an experience I'll never forget. I mean, football's one of those kind of games where sometimes it does take an injury to a teammate to, to give a player an opportunity and then it's up to the player to run with that and, and grasp that opportunity. And you did that. I know MLS was only two games in, but you've already got an assist under your belt. So, I mean, it looks like the transition for you has been, I don't want to say easy because obviously there's a lot of hard work, but you seem very comfortable out there playing at this slightly higher level than CPL. Yeah, and like I said before, I think um, I kind of envision myself being here, I think. And I definitely prepared myself for being in these moments and, and those types of situations. And um, obviously that assist on my debut was, was, you know, icing on the cake. But I thought I had a good performance overall. And again, it yeah. was um, another good performance. And again, that's all I try, try and strive to do is just be consistent and just have a consistent performance. And um, in those moments, you just have to kind of fall back on on all the training you've done over the years, and that's exactly what I did. I just remembered, you know, what I'm good at, what got me there, and, and I try to do those things. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't say it was uh, a necessarily easy transition, but um, definitely something I prepared for, and and obviously with the help of the coaching staff and and the, all my teammates here in Montreal, um, they made it easier on me to to kind of make that transition and, and allow me to play my game. So. Um, yeah, it's all about trying to get as comfortable as you can, as quickly as you can, and, and just falling back on, on kind of what got you there. And going to be back on the pitch soon in Orlando. Obviously, the negotiations up to to this week was quite bizarre. I was on the call with Evan Bush the, the other day. I mean, on a personal level, what, what was going through your mind when you're hearing there's a lockout? It's your first season in MLS. Are you thinking, I, I just can't believe this is happening? Yeah, I think not only me, but every player in the league, I think, but uh, for me personally, for it being my first year and um, how well, you know, the team was playing at that point, yeah. just for it to just stop was uh, very disheartening and, and very demotivating, but, um, you know, I think, like I said, I think football comes second to, to all those things, And yeah. but yeah, I, I, would, I would be lying if I said it, it wasn't tough, and um but at the end of the day, like I said, we're we're getting back to it, and um, the negotiations, obviously, between us and the league, were, you know, um, what's the right word for it? Um, frustrating. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of things kind of had to be sorted out. Um, but the MLSPA did, a, did an amazing job and, and kind of standing firm, and obviously the MLS did did a good job as well. And, and obviously, you're gonna have, you're gonna knock heads a couple times during these negotiations, and that's all part of it. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is, is us getting back on the pitch and, and both sides allowed for us to do so. So it's uh, looking very, very hopeful and I'm really looking forward to Orlando. Montreal was one of the, the last teams really to, to get back on the training pitch as well. Do you feel it's maybe going to leave you a little bit of a step behind or are you just, are you putting in like double training shifts or, or anything just now? No, I don't think it'll be a disadvantage in any way I think obviously we would love to, to be out there with the rest of the league at that point um, but you know like I said 
uh, we're still doing some individual training right now. We've had a good couple of weeks of that, and then hopefully here soon we can start doing some group training and, and kind of getting that on a consistent basis before we head to Orlando. And, and like I said, um, those are the cards that we are dealt, and obviously uh, this, our city had different rules because of the whole pandemic. And, yeah. Um, it's just all about following the protocol and doing all the right things. But like I said, I don't think it's going to be a massive disadvantage for us. We're going to be, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fit. We're going to be sharp. And, and as soon as we can start doing some group training here, it'll be a lot better. Thanks so much for your time today, Joel. Uh, pleasure talking to you. So delighted for you that, that you've got this deal and looking forward to, to seeing you back on the pitch in Orlando. And hopefully at some point you will get to play a game here at BC Place. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that would be something really, really special and something I'm very looking forward to. So um, thanks for the call and, and take care. That's great. Thanks so much, Joe. Take care. Great stuff from Joel there. Hope you enjoyed that. He's had a fantastic start from Montreal. It's just a shame that the, the virus has kind of derailed his season so far. But he's going to be back on the pitch again soon in Orlando. We'll get to see what he can do down there. And he's definitely been in the ascendancy the, the last couple of seasons. So much so that he's, he's probably going to play himself into the mix for the, the Canadian national team as well. Definitely feel the versatility that he's got is going to help him kind of carve out a, a long career in the game. It's been great watching him come through the ranks these last couple of seasons. And I'm sure there's a lot more still for him to come. One more part to go in this week's show... And we'll be rejoined by Zach to take a look over some of the Canadian Premier League news of the week and bring you this week's Wavelength. And we'll be back with all of that after this. Hi, I'm Alphonse Davies and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the final part of tonight's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off the final part was also the final song from tonight's Three of a Kind section. The wonderful Jarvis Cocker and Pulp there with a song called My Lend. A song that you can find on the soundtrack to the wonderful Scottish films Trainspotting. And you can also find it on the deluxe editions of their 1995 album, 
different class. Did you work out what the link to this week's Three of a Kind songs were? Kicking off part three, we had Carter, the unstoppable sex machine, with the only living boy New Cross. Part four kicked off with Pimlico by Dave Devant and his spirit wife, and we had Pulp there with Myland. And the link being, they are all areas of London. If you got that, congratulations. If you did manage to guess that we were going to play Pulp My Lane for the third one, then I think you should probably do the lottery this week, because that would have been a fantastic guess by you. Whether you got it or not, I hope you enjoyed those songs nonetheless, and we'll be back with a new Three of a Kind in next week's show. So let's keep the musical theme going in this part with this week's Wavelength. And we're actually staying in this century for once with, with this week's song, going back to 2004, and it's a rap track from a band called Haunted House. This is from a 12-inch release of theirs called 442 Football. Just check it, just check it, just check it. Yeah, check one, check two. Best. Get again. Double HP inside. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, yeah. Aradona. All right, all right. Yo, one, two, one, two. Wait, Tuesday night, Tuesday. Yeah. Zidane. 64 100. This one, 442. Four, football. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Twisted MC like my name was Ronaldo. Up and down like a yo yo. I know, he knows, she knows, we know. I'm a young, intelligent Negro. I sound two AS and stand proud. Started out, got makes me sound in a crowd. Silent quiver, but I can be loud. I'm way above you in the sky like a cloud. I pass on my like I'm playing football. Alpha, China, who shall I call? When I push it down, but we just can't fall. Wounded hands, that's my lyrical wall. Got bare speed, and I got bare skill. Twist another MC just for the thrill. Yo, I use a mic on my wheel I score 10 and you score nil Yo, I twist an MC like my name is Vieira Down the line my port will come clearer How I make MCs feel inferior I'm way too dirty, call me bacteria My team's really far, coming to your area To lock down holes from here to Algeria So don't buy cause we don't want malaria Join the deep beats, plainly scare ya Pictures, could you please come there? Let me tell you something in your little fine hair Especially the ones with the big round rare Cause they're back so fat that they're breaking the chair Jeans so tight that they're destined to tear But on the rule, no fake fog, no stare You're going on like you got power like the mayor But this is what happens when kids drink Twisted MC just like football Drop ball, play Liverpool football Strap on the mic just like football Hit them with the Liverpool football I twisted MC just like football Drop ball, play Liverpool football Strap on the mic just like football Hit them with the Liverpool football I twist an MC like my name was George Best It's a Liverpool football and your team can't tear So just press your left Please zip the lip because I know you talk shit You should skip the whole match and sit on the bench Kick the ball in the goal, not over the fence Don't play if you don't know the rules properly That's an offside, don't blame the referee You see, I make moves on my haunted road We shine like Stars, guy had a space, bro. Best much football, we get so toes. It's the end of the match, so we score 10 goals. Yo, try hockey, forget football. If it goes not a troll, tell her, give me a call. It's a lyrical football, we hold a trophy. Haunted house on top of the league. Yeah, twisting MCs like my name was Giggs. I'm a big now I'm not yet still MC. That's not like a skit talk. I drop any riddle, my style is brittle. When rhymes are pulled from the depths of my life, you hell of a calibility in Zanya. Don't grace me with a gifted tongue. So ask for a taste, and I will give you one. Cause yeah, I'm trapping in the tip of a sword. Flow so shocking that I write spinal cord. I write so tight, no break or Pause, MCs for the fill of the call So I'm cool, the little microphone controller That's I'm on the team, but I'm getting older Therefore, my name is becoming colder My eyes go close, I blow you over Just an MC, just like football Drop ball, play Liverpool football Strap in the mic, just like football Hit them with the Liverpool football I 
champ in a mic just like football Hit them with the Liverpool football I twist them MC just like football Drop ball, play Liverpool football Strap in a mic just like football Hit them with the Liverpool football I twist an MC just like Maradona You might see me high off marijuana Play ball or roll ball if you want I wanna lose on the move, it's lyrical Fiera to on me into the top right I'm as fat on the mic as damn me Wise, kick bars, kick balls from all angles Get broken like the soul's angle I'm a bit sick, leave MCs like how? Book for a foul cause I'm dirty with owls Shitting on the mic till I empty my bowels I spit so sick I leave MCs like wow. We be hitting goals and we hitting them hard Other teams place last, hitting the crossbars HHP and we took it too far But to get left the pitch with two yellow cards I'm pissing MC like my name is Henri I'm sick of what he wrote with double HP You'll never find another rapper quite like me Spit around, on garbage, make peace First we are up to the court, ignore amateur Tackle get round to the field and score Pin the t-shirt, take your neck in your jaw So don't play with a 4 by 4 by 2 performing formation tactics Beat your style with my lyrical hat-tricks Back in the net, then pulling off backflips You get jealous, try to knock them out backwards Wait up for just one second I'll put you right down and bend it like Beckham Launch it off like a new bigger weapon So don't the DJ, what do you reckon? Um, Twist the MC just like football Drop ball, play Liverpool football Strap for the mic just like football Hit them with the Liverpool football I twisted MC just like football Drop ball, play Liverpool football Strap for the mic just like football Hit them with the Liverpool football I mean, Twist MCs like my name was Skulls Track them down like 10 pin bowls Left on the floor looking butters like trolls And my flow's cold like the North and South Poles And I like Spring and Bombay Rose And girls who like taking off their clothes Anything goes when I spit flows out like water from a garden hose I'm ready to oppose any girl my foes Suppose they can oppose my foes and it shows My lyrical ability grows and grows Like a rose making MCs reach the highest of lows On the ball and I never ever doze When I play football, you know I score bare goals Head, shoulders, knees and toes okay. I want the rest with my haunted bros Twisted MCs that my name was Zidane Who man, what man, it's Jana man Kick ball past Mike with the Gidan Haunted band, touchdown, just land Spell it with a Y, it's Jana man Not a black man, or a white man I'm the yellow man, the yellow skin man Must my hands free Shake hands with the Gidan, it's Chicky Chani with a Shaolin plan. Shout last not least, the 60 bar piece. I'm from the parties and I'm quite nang. Yo, the Gidan, little nasty, she could game. Okay, green court alpha, what's my name? Oh, China, Jonah, full connection. This is a haunted house production. Twist the MC just like football. Drop ball, play Liverpool football. Jabs on the mic just like football. Hit them with the Liverpool football. I twist the MC just like football. Haunted House there with a track called 442 Football. Hope you enjoyed that one. We'll be back with another wavelength next week. So we're nearly finished this week's show, but before we do that, we are going to get Zach back on the phone to chat a little bit about some Canadian Premier League stuff that's kind of been happening this week. Not a lot of big news, not a lot further forward as to exactly what is happening with the, the return to play. But it, it certainly does look like it is down now between Langford and Prince Edward Island to, to possibly host a return to play. Canada Soccer has given BC and PEI the the all clear to kind of resume some kind of football activities. So, I mean, that that's the start of, of all this. That's assuming that they meet the, the local criteria and tick all the boxes for that. So, I mean, we don't know what's happening with that. But one of the things that did come out this week is that the initial player pay deferral that was mentioned at the start of the season has now turned into a pay cut. This, this was kind of tweeted out. Dwayne Rollins tweeted something out saying that a lot of players had got in touch with him unhappy about this and there had been no consultation. And we spoke before about the, the Canadian Players Union and the league's not recognising that union. Well, all, all of this sort of ended with that the league's saying that what Dwayne was tweeting was not 100% correct.
but it does seem to have opened up discussions with the, the league and the, the Canada PFA Players Union. And they've tweeted that there was constructive talks and they've had a, a lot of meetings this week. So hopefully this is the, the start to the league recognising the union and that we're on a, a much smoother course of action for all of this. Yeah, I, well, there's been some kind of mixed tweets from, from my recollection. Like, yeah, there has been some dialogue, but I think the the Twitter account of the, the players union has said, like, hey, this is, even though we've had dialogue on some things we still have not recognized, we still don't have the voice. Like, they don't, yeah. they don't have ultimately what they want yet. No, but they, they are at least talking to each other, which feels like a start, but it does feel like there's a long, long way to go. And the, the, But it's also awkward because the league is going out of their way to, like, not mention the, this union or desired union by the players, right? Like, they put out that whole... That whole release of it, it said, hey, well, we have a plan. I'm not going to tell you what it is. We have a plan. Oh, yeah. Talking with our players, but they, they won't, they tactfully, you know, choose not to include, you know, to mention that our, their players are unified by this union. Well, I mean, the, the commissioner, David Clanahan, is going to be doing a, a one soccer hangout on Monday. So by the time this comes out, yeah. it may or may not ha- have taken place you know he's going to get questions about recognising the players' union. Whether they get put to him or not, or how he answers that, is what's going to be very interesting. I don't know a lot about him, and I've, just, I've met him a couple, you know, a couple times in passing, but like, he, he is known for being anti-union, right? And his, and his work with Tim Hortons. Like yeah, that's a, or at least Tim Hortons was. I don't know if we can say that specifically okay, so about yeah. David Clanahan. Hortons, uh, when he was involved in leadership there, were known for being anti-union. Right? Yeah. Is that fair? That's fair. Okay. I don't want to mischaracterize him. Yeah. But I mean, it does feel like the union has to get recognised at some point, and this just feels like the ideal time to do it because you want to have everyone on the same page. You want to have everyone going in the same direction. You don't want to have the situation that you had with MLS and their players, and you don't want to lead to a lot of antagonisation of the players maybe not making this a, a, a league of choice for players, which it was starting, you felt, to be a league of choice for Canadian players. And it's going to be the same in MLS. I mean, we didn't talk about this when we talked about MLS, but players that's maybe looking at this and thinking about coming to MLS or domestic players looking to returning, they might look at this and go, you know what, I don't know that I want to be in a league that treats its players like this. Um, I've been really enjoying... I've been catching up on, on previous episodes and I'm really enjoying your long-form feature interviews. Um, listening to the Marcel de Young one, I mean, I think he was quite clear on this. Like, you know, no one's coming to play in the CPL to make money as a player, right? In the yeah. same way that maybe owners are not going to be making money in the short term uh, or medium term maybe even. Um, you know, they're coming here because they want to develop. They want a shot. They want to be able to move on to, to something uh, bigger and better, where they can actually make a, a better living and and continue to progress. So, like, yeah, you, the league is in a interesting position in terms of needing be, to be able to um, bring in young players with ambition. Um, and some of these actions, you're right, don't really don't are maybe aren't really helpful for in, in, at least in some respects. 
first year I think comes off because it's the first year and there's so many Canadians who have not got, got a shot and many of them got a shot this year. But in terms of like long term, you do have to be a place that like players want to play and feel cared for and that they're valued and you know and and that's not just I think as Marcel said in year two, not just a monetary um, not just a monetary thing. That's a you know uh, the bigger picture of life and how they're 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 taken care of. Absolutely, and one thing we we didn't talk about when we talked about MLS and the pay cuts there, seven and a half percent across the board. But 25% of the players in Major League Soccer make less than 100000 Now, in the CPL, they're going to be getting a pay cut across the board, and the vast majority of players there make less than 30000 Or maybe not the vast majority, but there's a lot of players that make less than 30000 Yeah. So, I mean, these pay cuts, it might not look much when you hear the percentage amounts, but if you're not getting paid much to begin with, you still have to live and pay your bills. And there's so many young players around CPL that have to live together because they can't afford not to. Yeah. Uh, no, I, mean, I, I mean, I don't know if you know, that, know this or not, but it's going to be, uh, I don't, because I, I haven't been able to find this out yet, but like, if they are getting government funding, the league, like for like for their wages, right? For their players' wages or yeah. whatever. Um, if they're, because my understanding was they wanted to, to like get that government money to cover 75% and defer the 25%. Exactly. Now, but, but now if they're not paying the 25%, are they still eligible for that 75%? That that was a question that a, a couple of people raised, so I mean, that's an interesting one, yeah. Because I know the government has been like, I mean, I know the government in this season uh, is, you know, looking at the approaches to the Canadian-American governments that have done, gone through with businesses and whatever, they, uh, I think they're going to be pretty serious about uh, following up on how these funds are distributed and what they're used for and whether yeah. or not they're legitimate, right? Whether or not they, they live within the regulations. Um, yeah. So I, I, I wonder if, if, yeah, I wonder how this pay cut interacts with all that. Yeah, I mean, it's a question a few folk had, and I, I haven't seen any answers for that. Maybe it's something that Clanahan will address in, a, in his one soccer yeah. hangout. I have a feeling they might. Yeah. It's going to be stuff like, oh, what was your favourite part of the, the first season in the league and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. What was your favourite first? <laughs> oh, man. The, the first disagreement with the players over salary. <laughs> but, I mean, talking about players that might want to come and play in the, the CPL, there's a, a former Whitecaps residency player that is now a free agent. Dario Zanatta had been playing with Partick Thistle and funnily enough I was going to be having Dario on the show but I wanted to wait to see what happened with Partick Thistle under the whole league reconstruction that might be going on in Scotland that's still not been sorted out so he had a clause in his contract that let him out of his contract if Partick got relegated so they have so he's asked to be released for that so you have to feel CPL might be beckoning for him he might want to obviously stay in Europe as well, or I have put word in that he's Fife about him before, so he could end up there. Uh, Darius got some talent, and I hope he is able to play one play and be continue to progress as a player. Yeah, but I mean, he's the kind of guy that might want to to come back to CPL. Although, even though he's playing lower level Scottish football, he's probably still making more over there than he would by coming back to play in the CPL. Yeah. 
potentially. Yeah. One other thing, just to before we wrap up about CPL news, it looks like York Nine are going to be changing their name, and they're just going to be known as Nine. Or maybe I read that wrong. I actually didn't. Re- I just saw the headline on this one. I didn't actually read the article. I just saw. It's a, it's just something they're considering. Nine, nine to rebrand. So yeah. I didn't know that that meant that that uh, they were going to actually change the name. I just thought they were going to. I don't know. I imagine they're just going to be something like York FC, but I mean. They're probably going to be something like York Gunners or York Artillery, judging by what the other teams in the league are called. But I, I, um, I think that I mean, obviously, they must have some strong reasons for doing that. And, and you know, if you look at season ticket holders, they were have always been uh, low. Uh, I think in comparison to the inaugural seven, the other six inaugural teams, but. As much as it, York Nine as a name is not my cup of tea, and like, in case I, have, I don't think I've told you this before, but like I spent a considerable part of my life growing up in the York region. Oh, um, yeah, like I grew up in. Oh, I went to middle school and high school in, in, in the York, in York region. Um, as much as uh, yeah, the nine elements of it are not known for being nine or whatever. <laughs> like. So as much as the name is not like I'm not like I don't have an affinity for it or I don't like I don't have strong feelings about it, I, I would be more okay with them keeping it with them, than them changing it personally. But at least it's something different, you know what I mean? And I don't know, why, like why change it after one, yeah. like what essentially is one I, season? I, I've never liked it, and I mean that they, they are they're the second team, second Canadian team to have a number in their name after Vancouver Whitecaps nil. I think that's how most folk around MLS have known them for for the last few years. I'm so sorry. That was funny. But, I mean, what, what was the name of York's mascot again? Oh, Yorkie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Retired how could I forget Yorkie? Jeez. Down or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, first of all, they lose Yorkie, and now they lose the nine. It's, it's sad times in York. But they are building a, a really strong roster. Ryan Telfer's back to, to play for them. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they're building a good squad if, if the season gets underway, so... I mean, we haven't covered York 9 much in this show, so I, I would remedy that and we'll we'll get a couple of York 9 folk on, or at least one person from York 9 to, to chat about a few things before. I think, you should, I think you should have nine people on. Oh, maybe. Each of the parts of the region. I've only got basic Zoom. We can only have two people free. Oh, is that it? Yeah, any three or more. It's Well, you're allowed 40 minutes, and you know my, my interviews. Do, sure. Yeah, I have I have a pro account or whatever, so I could get us you know, more people. Ah, Good to know. It's like when I when I did my interview this week for the East Five podcast that I've started, an hour and forty five minutes. That's a new record for me speaking to a player. Check that out if you haven't already. Glory days of gold dot podbean dot com. Yeah, is that going to be on? Like, you get that on iTunes? Or oh no, yeah, it's already on iTunes. So yeah, you can find it on okay. iTunes. You can find it on Spotify as well. The, the, only the second episode, and we ran to two hours and 40 minutes. So nice and long episodes, just how you like them. Yeah. Not not our longest one, because the longest one that we've done was two hours 50. I checked that out. Apart from the Christmas specials, which were longer, but the, the longest normal episode was two hours 50 minutes. Those Christmas specials are fun. Yeah. It's going to be weird doing it remotely this year. I feel that that might be the case, but... 
Anyway, before we babble on and waffle on anymore and end up in a three-hour episode for this one, let's just say bye to Zach and let everyone know where they can find you online. Uh, yeah, you can find me occasionally posting on Twitter at ZacharyAM. Awesome. Thanks for joining us as always, Zach. Take care and we'll speak to you next week. Until then. So that is it for this week's episode of the AFTN Soccer Show. Apart from we have to give you a Slutsk and Vikinger update. It's not been going very well for Slutsk, but they did get a draw. They're winless in five now. They've kind of fallen down the Belarusian Premier League. Ground out a 90th minute equaliser in a 1-0 draw at home to Torpedo on Saturday morning. I watched that on delay because it was a 4am kickoff. So hopefully they're going to be getting back into the winning ways soon. But I have to give a big shout out to our Viking boys in the Faroe Islands. Viking Argota, a masterclass in a 4-2 win against B36 on Sunday morning. Got up at 9am to watch that one. Great stuff, beautiful setting at home and it was a really good game of football. You can maybe check that out on YouTube. Second goal for Vikinger was the best of them all. 30 yards screamer into the top corner. Mon the Vikings. But that is it for this week's show now. Honestly, no more waffle coming. I'm Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFT in Canada. Find us on Instagram at AFT in Soccer. And find us on YouTube at AFT in Canada and AFT in website. Also, as I mentioned, you can check out my new East Fife podcast, Glory Days of Gold. You can find that on iTunes, Spotify, and on glorydaysofgold.podbean.com. We'll be back next week. Who knows what twists and turns there's going to be in the world of North American soccer. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care. Stay home. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And mourn the caps. Go into your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life. <laughs>